Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. What is mathematics? Chances are that you'll get very different answers depending on who you ask. A physicist, chemist, or engineer will likely tell you that mathematics is a powerful and necessary tool to understanding and manipulating the laws of nature. An economist or psychologist will probably say something similar, but instead of the laws of nature, they'll assure you that a proper understanding of statistics or computer modeling will enable you to comprehend human behavior. Others, still suffering from a distasteful high school experience, will simply roll their eyes and mutter that mathematics is simply a set of arcane and relatively arbitrary rules, typically associating it with arithmetic. But what about professional mathematicians? Well, for them, mathematics is a very different thing entirely a realm of beauty and elegance and artistry. How can one thing be looked upon so completely differently by so many? Well, to help understand that, it's best to turn to someone who's blessed with a deep mathematical understanding and the power to communicate. Someone like the best-selling author Ian Stewart. So one of the things that's happened to me a lot, and I'm guessing it's happened to you an awful lot more, is that I go to some party and I'll talk to some very educated interesting person who's uh, a historian or a, uh, an, an archaeologist or, or perhaps even a lawyer, although they tend not to be nearly as interesting, and will be engaged in, in, in some interesting conversation. And then they'll ask me what I do, or they'll ask me what I did at any rate. And when I mention anything to do with mathematics, their eyes will, will mist over and they'll have this look in their eye, almost like a deer caught in the headlights, and they'll say, oh, well, I don't know very much about that. I'm not one of those types of people. Does that happen to you a lot? It does. Perhaps not quite as much as it used to, but um, it happened about a month ago on holiday. Oh, we really? were in, yeah, we were in the, the, the Caribbean and uh, in Barbados, and um, the manager's cocktail party in the hotel. I was talking to this very articulate, intelligent couple. I think he was something in the city. Right. Um, and it, you know, the usual, what do you do? And I said, well, um, I write books. I've learned not to say I'm a mathematician straight out. <laughs> I write books. He's into the gentleman. That's right. Oh, what sort of books? I said, well, sort of popular science books. Oh, says, says the lady, what's, um, you know, what's that? I said, well, um, for example, I've done one recently on the great mathematical equations and how they've influenced the course of human history and culture. And she kind of looks at me and says, I'm afraid that's way over my head. And I thought, you know, apart from the word equation, I haven't actually said anything yet. Right. You know, um, this is defensive reaction It's a defensive reaction, and so we, we moved on to a different topic, and that right. was fine. Um, but I thought, you know, it is actually possible to um, converse at that level without that kind of reaction, even if you know absolutely nothing. I mean, if I didn't know anything about what, what, what her husband did. Right. But I didn't start saying, oh, you know, banking, that's, that's, that's something right. I don't I know nothing understand. about that. No, I, I can't I, even have that conversation. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I do get the impression it's not quite as common as it used to be. It used to be almost sort of de rigueur that people would respond in this way. Oh, I was never any good at maths when I was at school. Right. Um, 
And I, th I actually think it's a defense mechanism. And so what's it, what's, it, what's it caused <laughs> by? Because, I mean, presumably it dates back to this, the, their experiences at school, their formative yeah. times where they, 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 they have these, these terrorized notions or, or these notions of being terrorized by, by some mathematician uh, teacher. Well, I, th I think, um, particularly perhaps in the past, mathematics at school was actually a rather daunting experience. If it wasn't something that you were naturally good at, then it was kind of tough. And the really tough thing about it was, if the answer's wrong, it's wrong. Right. And the teacher asks a question, you say the answer's 17, it's actually 16, and you can't say, well, that was close. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe nowadays you can, but you couldn't <laughs> in those days. Uh, and they would just say, wrong. And it, 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 there was no wiggle room. There was no way out. Right. And um, I think the other problem, which again, I think in some ways, um, was greater in the past, then it eased off a bit, now it's become a problem again, is there is so much emphasis on the nuts and bolts of doing the maths that nobody gets told why they're doing it, what it's for, right. what role it's played in human history, right. you know, all of these things, because there isn't room in the syllabus, there isn't room in the school timetable to uh, to go into that kind of thing. The poor teacher has got enough trouble going through the prescribed material and ticking the boxes to say that this is what the kids have done, which certainly in, in, in Britain now, it is very, it, essentially everything the teacher teaches in a given week is prescribed. Right. You know, and they have to certify that the class has done certain things. And of course, the bureaucrats think if the class has done it and the box has been ticked, then they know it. Right, and then everything is done, everything is <laughs> everything, fine. And, and, and then we move on to next week, and the idea that what we do next week depends upon what we did this week kind of gets lost. And the idea that even if they've been through the material, maybe they don't really understand it, that gets lost. And the real problem with mathematics is the way it builds step by step on everything you've done before. It's very hard to jump in afresh right. at some higher level. So once you're lost, you're you stay lost. lost. Yes. And I always found with, with my students that when they came in and said, I don't understand some topic in lectures, you would look at this and say, ah, no, actually, that's not what you don't understand. What you don't understand is something from three lectures ago, mm -hmm. which is what we're now using. And this thing would make sense if you had fully understood what you were doing three lectures ago. But these are mathematics students. I want to get back right. a little bit before, before we, we, we move on. I want to get back to this, this person right. at a party you met. Yeah. The, the, this, this person who, because it, it seems to me that there, there seems to be a bit of a dichotomy going on. When I, when I talk about people who don't understand things, there seems a real difference. We all have areas of expertise. We all feel more comfortable talking about some things and talking about other things. The other, a few moments ago, you were talking to me about Egyptology and your interest there. I don't pretend to right. have any experience whatsoever in that, but I'm happy to have that conversation. But when one talks about mathematics or the hard sciences, but let's stick to mathematics, particularly mathematics, there is this reaction that you can, you can almost see the fear and the terror in people's, people's minds. Yeah. And I think to myself, on some sociological level, that's very, very different than anything else. If I were to say, oh, I study ancient Babylonian history or... or 
or I study linguistics. I study the, the linguistic dialects of the Icelandic people. Somebody would say, oh, well, that's very interesting. <laughs> but they wouldn't have that, they, they may not be interested no, at no. all, but they wouldn't have that, that, that sense of, 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 of being absolutely uh, running for the hills. I, I, I suspect if you could wire them up, you would discover serious physiological signs of terror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, in fact, I, I did once suggest that we should be asking for danger money to do mathematics because we're doing something that everybody else is scared of. Right. But, uh, but that suggests it, a real sociological is, problem it, it at some is, level. It is, and they've, um, they have acquired this feeling of fear from somewhere. I think some of it is this unrelenting nature of the subject, that you feel you ought to be able to handle it, you feel this isn't really, can't be that hard, can it? And yet there is a kind of mental block. Right. And once you've got the mental block, and without wishing to be nasty to, to teachers who have a very difficult job to do, it's so much easier to put somebody off a subject with a bit of bad teaching than it is to maintain their interests with good teaching. And I think mathematics is actually something that you have to have a certain kind of mind to actually enjoy. Do you think that anybody could... could in could, could enjoy mathematics. Do you think that there's a neurophysiological difference? You'll hear people say that. They'll say, I'm not a math person. I'm just, I just can't do it. I'm not hardwired in some particular way to do math. Is that something which actually holds water with you or, or, or not? I don't think there's a kind of hard and fast barrier, but I think some people are naturally more able to handle mathematical thinking than others. Right. I think you can train people to do better you can probably train them to do worse, <laughs> maybe easier. Yeah. Um, Actually, we're think, doing quite a good yeah, job at that. So, um, so. I mean, young children mostly seem to be very interested in numbers and shapes and things like that. Right. And at some point, they start to just switch off and they lose interest. And I really don't know whether that's because their schools have kind of trained them not to be interested in some way, or whether it's just that that's a fairly natural thing for most kids to do. Um, mm. One of my problems with all this is I, I didn't really experience that problem. I, I found maths interesting. Right. Um, but it's, uh, if you're a kind of people person, if you enjoy games and sports and communal activities and, and all of that sort of thing, mathematics is a very sort of abstract, austere sort of subject. You know, it's just these number things and you do incomprehensible things with them. Uh, I do think that the teachers, with some reason, um, tend to tell you how to do things, but not why you do it that way. You're very careful, yeah. and you're very <laughs> generous to the teachers. Uh, I'm, I'm less careful <laughs> and less generous. Uh, and we can, we can get to my uh, bombastic <laughs> comments in a minute. But uh, and I'd like your reactions, because they're much more important than my bombastic comments. But, Two of the things that you mentioned specifically uh, in your book, Letters to a Young Mathematician, in terms, uh, in terms of the, the delusions and the, the misconceptions that many people have from their days in, in, in school being subjected to mathematics, uh, are the equivalence of mathematics and arithmetic, this notion that that's all mathematics is. Mathematics is all arithmetic and calculating and adding and subtracting and long division and what have you. And this notion that everything is at the back of the book. This, this idea that, that the field is a static, uh, contained whole, 
and that there is no place for discovery, there is no place for creativity, there is no place for ingenuity. And when I've told people who, who themselves are these self-proclaimed non-math people, no, mathematics is about beauty, it's about elegance, it's about discovery, it's about creativity, they look at me as if I am from Mars, <laughs> right. because that is so completely different from their experiences. And, and so getting to the question, mm. rather than just being bombastic, my first question is, uh, have you found that to be the case predominantly among the people who consider themselves math people? Is it more a question that they really haven't been exposed to what mathematics is and what it could do, or is it more a question of their own lack of abilities? I think it's mostly that they've not been exposed to this. And uh, I was kind of defending the teachers because the teachers, even if they want to do that, they're often not allowed to do that. But it is also true um, in a sense, proving that mathematics must be more than what most people think it is, that most mathematicians can get very, very good, well-paid jobs. It's one of the best-paid professions in, in, the, in terms of degree subject. You, you earn more money as a mathematician than almost any other degree subject. Sure. Well, that's why this you is, went into it. This is a, yeah, well, of course I do. <laughs> anyway, but it, it, this, this is a big secret that people don't understand. Right. Um, but because there is such a demand for trained mathematicians in so many different kinds of jobs, very few go into teaching. So a lot of the people who are teaching mathematics weren't really trained to a high level in the subject. Yes. And if you're trying to teach something, it feels very uncomfortable if your understanding is three pages of the book ahead of Absolutely. the class. Absolutely. And I wonder if the teacher themselves, they are scared because someone's going to ask them a question and they won't know what the answer right. is. There's, they may be scared, but they certainly won't have the appreciation to be able to inspire the student, to be able to give them perspective, to be able to, to, to portray a bigger picture of what the whole point is that, that is being done in class. That's right. I was very fortunate. I had a couple of really good math teachers um, from about the time I was 13, 14 onwards who went out of their way to show those of us who were interested and good at the subject that there was much more to math than uh, you would have thought just going through the standard school stuff. Um, I've never quite understood why so many people think that because the answers are at the back of the book, that means the book contains everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the answers to those questions. Right. But, <laughs> and and I, I, I suspect it's because they'd actually like to be told that really the book does contain everything, because if not, there's even more of this stuff we're going to have to do. Right. Um, I vividly remember Dame Kathleen Ollerenshaw, who is a very well-known British... She's still alive. She's she? still alive. She's in her 90s. She's a math educator. She was the mayor of Manchester. <laughs> uh, so she was political as well as an educationalist. Very and very interested in, in mathematical research. She did it herself. But when she was still at school, um, she said to one of her friends that uh, she wanted to be a research mathematician. And the friend said, you know, why? He said, well, I want to create more new mathematics. And the friend looked at her and said, isn't there enough of it already? <laughs> please, please don't make more for me to learn. And if you're not enjoying it, if somehow your interest has either switched off of its own accord or been switched off, it's very hard to get it back. And as the subject moves on, you're left behind as well. So it rapidly comes to a point where you, you just 
shut up shops, no, I, I don't want to face this, I don't want to do this. But we insist on dragging the students through the math courses anyway. And I'm not sure there is an answer to that in the sense that if you said, okay, you don't have to do it, I don't think that would work either. No, of not. Because if you say that, you're in effect saying, here's a whole pile of jobs you'll never be able to do. And it's not just the standard list. Right. And you won't be exposed to these ideas or you That's won't right. have any opportunities. You, you, uh, there will be all sorts of times in your life where you will not understand what's going on. And if you'd stuck with this subject, you maybe would have understood it, or some of it. So, um, although we don't use school math every day in obvious ways, it kind of informs our background thinking on a lot of things. Right. It's much easier to think about newspaper report about some new medical breakthrough or whatever, which will quote a few statistics. And if you can just look at those figures and not be put off by the numbers, you're already halfway towards understanding you know, what What's the article's telling you about, yeah. which may be rubbish, <laughs> often is. Right. Depends on the newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, but and it depends you, on the way those statistics yeah, are framed. But it. you have more chance of, of judging this. So I think as an informed citizen, there is a certain amount of basic math that you need to know. I think it's a pity we call it mathematics at school because... It should be arithmetic. The real subject, it's a bit, you know, we do a bit of algebra, we do maybe a bit of trigonometry. Mm. I did calculus at school. Yeah. Um, but mostly it's arithmetic and that's what sticks in people's minds. Right. They think mathematicians do very big sums. Research mathematicians just do bigger sums, invent new numbers, whatever. Um, although one, one of my topologist friends here said he, he was talking to his wife who was a biologist and she was uh, expressing this, this particular view that it's all big sums. And he said, no it isn't, no it isn't. That's, and he stopped and said, well actually at the moment that's exactly what I'm in the middle of doing. <laughs> I do want to get back to, to what mathematicians actually do and what mathematics really is so that we can answer these questions. But before I do, I want to get back to this point of, of the teacher and the importance of a very good teacher. You yourself have said that you had very good teachers growing yeah, up. Yeah, I was lucky. In my, but in my experience, almost everyone who makes a career in the mathematical sciences, if you sit down and talk to them and you ask them, did you have a particularly important time in your life where you were influenced by a, by a teacher in a positive direction, almost everyone will say yes. They had a formative experience with a with a great teacher in math or physics or chemistry or, or, or what have you that led them towards a, a deeper understanding and inspiration and more stimulation in this, in this sort of field. Absolutely. No, I mean, we, we, from time to time, we'll have conversations like this in the common room in the department with other uh, faculty members. And yes, they all say that. Uh, it seems to be a very common experience. And also, if you get enough exposure to real mathematics or something interesting from one good teacher. There's, I think there's some sort of threshold where once you're past the threshold, even if, even if you then got a bad teacher right. or you're a less immune. inspiring you're, you're one, you're now immune. <laughs> That's right. You, you know already, um, I went to the local library, I took out books, I started reading math books from the library, you know, as all teenagers do, of course. Um, but it didn't matter after that what the teachers did. I figured it out. I knew there was much more to it. I knew you could do creative work. But there was a time when you were put at the bottom part of your class, as you've written yep. about in your, in your book, and you somehow That's right. <laughs> you were saved by your mother and saved by a friend who yep, put it, you it in was, bed. It was my mum. Yeah, I, I was about eight years old, I guess, and um, 
It was a new class, just starting a new class, had a new teacher, and we did some math tests. And in the second test, I added all the numbers together, and by that point, we'd moved on to subtraction, and I was supposed to subtract them. Right. So I got zero. And that was fair enough, but at that point, he did something which I think was a big mistake. Because I'd got zero on that test, he put me down into a lower group in the class, doing easier material. When you clearly knew the difference when between I knew the difference. Right. I, I, just, I just hadn't bothered to pay attention. Right. Um, and so I was put down into this lower class, and I was getting bored. Sure. Now, my mother was getting worried about this because she'd had a similar experience when she was much younger with chemistry. She wanted to be an English teacher, but she was bad at chemistry. And in those days, you had to pass all of the subjects to matriculate. And if you didn't matriculate, you couldn't be a school teacher. It was crazy. So those chemists did it. Yeah. So, so, so she saw the signs of this and thought, right. she, you know, I'm not going to allow this to happen. Right. At that point, by sheer good fortune, one of my friends pushed me over in the playground and I broke my collarbone. And in those days, a broken collarbone was five weeks out of school, bandaged up. Yeah, they don't do it anymore. They don't even bother to set the bone anymore, I believe. They really? just, you know, you just sort of let it go and it'll sort itself. But no, I, I was... Mathematics suffers as a result. But anyway, right. I was all bandaged up with a figure eight bandage and stuck at home. And it was my right hand and I couldn't write. Right. So my mother thought, here is an opportunity. She went to the school, got the mathematics textbook, went out, bought an exercise book and a pencil and sat down and I dictated to her. We went through question by question from the book. I dictated the answers. She wrote them down. Cool. And after we'd done 400 of these questions and I got four wrong, <laughs> the answers were in the Do back of the book, you see. <laughs> she could check. Do you which ones you got wrong? <laughs> no, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> um, she went into the school. I was, by that point, about 10 weeks ahead of the rest of the class. Right. And she went in waving this exercise book and said, there is nothing wrong with this child's arithmetic. So they put me up into the top class and um, never looked back. But it does make you wonder yeah. how many other people who didn't have a mother who was so conscientious and so determined, who, who had, by coincidence, broken their collarbone <laughs> and been, been away from school for five That's weeks, right. who, who would have had the same... Um, uh, perhaps mathematical potential or a similar mathematical potential and were bored and perhaps had just not paid attention or, or what have you, who have been lost to, to, to not only mathematics history but to society. Yeah, I, th I think there are so many ways to, for things to go wrong. Right. <laughs> and it's a rather narrow path to keep them right until you get to this point where, as we were saying, you're, you're, you're immune. Once you've really got it into your head that mathematics is interesting and you know why. Uh, uh, there was a group of us, we used to, we did our own research. It wasn't research research, but it was new stuff to us. It was things that maybe um, certainly were not in the school syllabus, were not even in the university syllabus. They were just interesting little mathematical problems. One of my friends was very good at coming up with the questions. Um, I was a bit better at answering them, I think, but uh, and we, we, we would work as a group. Right. And we have a lot of fun. Do you still see these people at all? Uh, I, I still see one of them. Um, and in fact, one other. There's, there's one friend who I went to primary school with when we were five. So 62 years ago, Robin and I started primary school together and fought like cat and dog. 
But we got to know each other, and from about the age of 10 onwards, we were very good friends, and we were still in touch. We will sometimes go and stay with him. He'll come up and stay with us. He used to come with us on family holidays. So, yeah, I've still got some friends from that time. And all of us had this attitude that we were actually quite interested in, in exploring ideas ourselves, playing around with things. We would write our own little encyclopedia. Um, we wrote a lot, and we did quite a lot of uh, research math <laughs> together. Yeah, now, an experience like that really does change your attitude to everything. Indeed, and it's quite unusual. I mean, it's very unusual. Uh, the, the, uh, the senior mathematics teacher at the school, uh, the very good teacher, had never had a group like that in his class, ever. Right. But I think it's also probably fair to say that had it not been for that senior mathematics teacher, this also wouldn't have occurred. That, that, that the, the, the situation was ripe to be explored, but that he was also a catalyst in, in structuring yeah. things and making sure that they happened. Yeah, he, he encouraged us. He, 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 um, he spent his free periods teaching us interesting math. <laughs> he knew we could handle the stuff sure. in the ordinary classes. And in fact, in the ordinary classes, he sat us together at the back and said, do your French homework. Don't, pay, don't, don't worry about this. The, don't disturb. If I ask right. a question, don't put your hand up. I'm not going to choose you. I know you know the answers. This is for the other guys. Right. Um, but uh, he would give us something else to, to keep us interested. And, and it worked. Right. It really worked. In fact, the three of us went off and did a mathematics degree at university. I think I'm the only one who stayed in the academic world after that. But... He had this very... Well, not everyone was successful. <laughs> well, and, 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 well, and one of them bec one became a banker. Right. His, his, his dad was a banker, in fact, so it wasn't a great surprise. I suspect the family may have uh, influenced that choice a little. Yeah. It's no, quite bankers likely. Are, bankers are like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Doctors another one. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's another point that you mentioned in, in Letters to a Young Mathematician, which is not the only book of yours that I've read, but I think <laughs> it's the most germane to this particular discussion. Yeah, I agree and, with that. Yeah. And, and that is this... this um, this notion of, again, a bit of a defense mechanism, often uh, perhaps out of insecurity, but, but very often out of ignorance. As someone that comes along and says things, oh, well, all this mathematics, all this science, that's, that's, a, that's a poor way of looking at the world. Uh, I'm a romantic. I believe in beauty. I believe in elegance. I believe in these things. And you, with your numbers and your, your ideas, your, you somehow you cast a pall on the true beauty of the way the world is. The typical, I guess, neo-romantic way to look at it. You give a very specific example when you talk about a rainbow. And you say that when you look at a rainbow, you're able to appreciate not only the beautiful colors and the way that they look, but you're able to appreciate the fact that the reason you see the same, the, the same depiction of a rainbow as someone else does is because of the symmetry of the, uh, of the raindrops and where the light comes out. And you recognize that it's not necessarily the case that just because uh, water is, uh, is ref uh, just because of the water droplets act acting as a prism, doesn't necess wouldn't necessarily imply that everyone would see a rainbow unless there would be this particular symmetry and the light would come out in a, in a particular way. The details don't matter, but what matters is that you're able to trace a definite path to symmetry, to a geometric property, which gives you a deeper understanding of why we all see rainbows when we look in different positions. And you mentioned that a romantic person would say, well, that's all just this mathematical mumbo-jumbo that somehow takes away from the beauty and the spiritual moment of looking at this rainbow. And you would take issue with that and say, well, actually, no, this in fact enhances the beauty for me. It enhances the, the, 
the understanding because I don't have to, I can add my, my mathematical awareness and my geometric sensitivities to the aesthetic sense of the rainbow. I, yeah, I do not buy this argument that if you understand something, you somehow destroy the magic. I just don't think that's true. We are not that sort of animal. We evolved over millions and millions of years in the natural world. We have an appreciation of the natural world in our heads for all sorts of reasons. Where our sense of beauty comes from is not clear to me. It's not obvious that has survival value. I, I can't tell you a, an evolutionary just so story about it. Right. But it's in there and it's in all of us. Now, some people certainly with training may appreciate the finer points of a painting or a sculpture or something in a way that I can't. But I don't think it makes any sense to point to a rainbow and say, I am such a wonderful person and I know nothing about the science behind that rainbow. Therefore, it's a much more valid experience for me Actually. than it is for you who stupidly have actually figured out why it happens. Right. You know, um, no. We actually know more about it. I think it improves the experience because it puts it into a context for me. I can look at a rainbow and say, now, I actually know something about the mathematics that behind that. And that same mathematics comes up in various other places. And let me show you some of those. Let me tell you about related things that you might not realize are related. Right. And so it enriches the experience. And in fact, it might enrich your experience later on because you might later on make a connection between that particular symmetry or that particular perspective and something that you hadn't thought of which gives you a deeper mathematical understanding oh that's just like the rainbow isn't that really exactly like what we were doing before and that's really the way that i i, I think research and further development of the field can actually happen yes i mean i can't prove i'm right here i can't prove that i get just as much pleasure out of a rainbow as somebody who doesn't know how it forms but that's because nobody really knows how to do that experiment. But I don't think there's any serious evidence that being ignorant of the causes of things somehow spoils the effect. It, it might if it's a piece of stage magic. Mm. Yeah, if, if I know how the magician saws the lady in half, maybe my, my feeling of surprise and shock as he does it, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, that's clever. You know, if I know how it's done, I, I sit there thinking, okay, that's clever, but I know how to do that. Um, I once actually, my wife and I spent lunch with one of the television magicians before a, a, a broadcast, yeah, um, Paul Daniels. And um, he was just showing us card tricks. He always keeps in practice. He, he wasn't trying to show off, it's just this was an opportunity to, to practice his, his tricks. And it was just astonishing what was happening to these cards in front of our eyes. And it was right in front of us, and you still could not see how. I mean, it changed into a totally different pack at one point. Anyway, they started with red backs, and they ended up with blue backs. And it was the entire pack. And I don't know where it went. <laughs> they, don't, they don't teach you that. Anymore. No. So if he'd shown us how to do it, it might have spoiled that. Right. But a rainbow is not a conjuring trick. No. It's a natural phenomenon. And the mathematics is extraordinarily beautiful. So let's get back to what mathematics really is. We've talked about what it's not, what people might be under the impression that it is. They might think it's exactly equivalent to arithmetic. They might think that it's a static field of just calculating bigger and bigger numbers. They might think mathematicians, all they do all day, perhaps with the assistance of computers, is to calculate, to do really, really complicated long division questions or something right. like that, because that's what they, they experience. 
Um, so what is mathematics really? And what, what does it feel like to be, what, what are you doing when you're doing frontline mathematical research? I think mathematics is about form and structure and logical connections. If certain things happen, if a problem is set up in a particular way, it has certain ingredients, what does that tell you? How can you answer it? It's about problem solving, but it, it's about seeing the kind of elegant structure. You hope it's elegant because good mathematics usually is elegant. Um, the elegant structure that opens up a better understanding of whatever it is you're working on. I tend to, there is this broad brush division of mathematics into pure and applied. Mm. And it's, you can argue about it, but actually it does capture a, a certain distinction in, in the broad way that various people think about what they are you driven by real world problems? Are you driven by the inner beauty of mathematics? Yeah. But you can be driven by both. And to some extent I am. And many, many other people were, as yeah, you pointed but, but out. Gauss was, and yeah, sorts of people, yeah, very well, famous people. This is a fairly modern distinction. You, know, you can do both. Uh, you can wander from one to the other. A lot of the most interesting stuff is in this no man's land where they overlap. Right. Um, increasingly so. And actually today's, um, in either pure or applied math departments, and there are still a lot of places that separate them, there is much more understanding that we're all in this together, actually. Right. Yeah, you guys like to do it one way, we like to do it another, but if we put it together, it's much more powerful. So uh, I like to work in areas which essentially combine symmetry. So there is a built-in beautiful mathematical structure even before you start, basically. It's got to be nice because symmetries are always nice, as long as you can find out something useful, something that works. Um, but with some connection to the real world. Combine the two, and that's where I feel happiest. But if you come in and, and watch what I'm doing, a lot of the time I'll be working on the kind of pure mathematical end, trying to f figure out what, what this structure is telling me. Why does it work like this? Is this the right model for the problem in the first place? How do we understand this? What does it do? Um, so I will be mostly thinking as a pure mathematician about the mathematical problem, but every so often, especially when I get stuck, I and or collaborators, because I tend to work in small groups of people, um, will take another look at the application, take another look at the real world. Um, my main mathematical collaborator is very good at going off and talking to experimentalists or um, uh, people who understand the application better than we do. Right. and asking them questions. And you can't get that kind of thing by just reading the research papers because they don't tell you what you want to know. The, the, you know when, when you're starting to put the math and the applied problem together, the kind of questions you ask may not be the ones that people are used to asking in that subject area. In fact, the really big breakthroughs happen when they're not. That's Precis right. Precisely that. That's right. I mean, one, of your, one of your many uh, very interesting results is this notion of of, of linking mathematical oscillations to animal gates, uh, yeah. which, is, which is something that I'm sure most people who are, who are not scientists, not mathematical, they would find that fascinating. They would think, my goodness, this is what a mathematician does. He does something like this. So tell us a story about how that came about, because that's a fascinating story, not only because of what you did, but also how you did it and how it happened and what, what the process of discovery was like. This shows the indirect way in which interesting research ideas, really interesting research ideas, arise. Um, it started, my friend Marty Golubitsky, who is an American mathematician I've been collaborating with since 1983, um, he and I wrote a conference 
in Northern California. And we'd be doing work on the mathematics of coupled oscillators, that is, of systems that can vibrate periodically and you hook them together in some sort of network. And we'd worked out some of the properties of this in the car on the way back from the conference with nothing to write on. We were actually, there were four of us in, in, in a mini, a British <laughs> mini. Three mathematicians and a physicist. So you were and, forced to collaborate. Yeah, and, Martin, and we had all our luggage, and Martin and I were stuck in the back, and he'd picked up a, a crate of wine from his favourite vineyard on the way, and we were kind of heading for the hotel and the airport on this long trip. And so we sat there, and we decided to work out in our heads the basic mathematics of uh, a ring of coupled oscillators. And we eventually wrote this up and published it. Uh, and sometime later, I was reviewing a book um, which was about engineers taking inspiration from nature. Hmm. So it had chapters on vision and robot vision, but it had a chapter with a whole series of papers on animal movement. And it was robot engineers who wanted to make robots with legs for various purposes. Right. And it was about what the biologists and zoologists had found out about the, the, the mechanics and so on of animal movement. Right. And one of the things they talked about was symmetric gates gate being a pattern, and as soon as I saw symmetric, I thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and I looked at the patterns and thought, they're just like our oscillator systems. And so in the, the review, which was for New Scientist magazine, I put in a throwaway sentence just saying, you know, these patterns look like things I've seen in coupled oscillators. You know, I wonder if anyone would like to fund that sort of research. Could anyone fund a robot cat, I think, is, is what I said. <laughs> And about two days later, I got a phone call from Jim Collins, who's an American now at Boston. And Jim was in Oxford, and he phoned up and said, I can't fund a robot cat, but I know some people who can. Can I come and talk to you? And he came up, and he knew the biological side, the physiology of animal movement, and I knew the mathematics of coupled oscillators, and we talked to each other, and we put together a series of papers explaining how we thought this connection went. Mm. And then various other colleagues got in on the act as well. And from time to time, every so often, there's another paper published on this idea. But the, the beautiful patterns you see when an animal moves, think of a trotting horse. One diagonal pair of legs hits the ground, then the other diagonal pair. It's absolutely perfect rhythm, and it's this beautifully symmetric movement. Um, that's one of the standard patterns you expect to see in a, a network of nerve cells, which is presumably what's controlling the, right, the, the movement. The, the movement. Right. Um, so this was a great revelation, and it came about by a series of rather strange accidents. And I think it if you involve yourself in lots of different things, I'm a bit of a butterfly brain, I'm, I'm interested in many different things, but from time to time one of them will spike sparks off another one. I, I think you're creating opportunities for that kind of connection, which you would never notice if you're stuck in your own narrow little field. I think eclectic is a better word than butterfly brain. <laughs> I think butterfly brain is more accurate, actually. But, um, but, but the importance uh, yeah, of being exposed to different things, I, making connections, yeah, making things. I, 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 I sometimes maintain that there is virtually nothing that I have taken an interest in at some point in my life 
that hasn't turned out to be useful in some way somewhere else. All sorts of courses I took as an undergraduate which I thought would never be relevant to my research. Every so often something from them pops up and you think, oh, hang on, I know how to do that. I did my Galois theory course back in right. Cambridge when I was a right. student. Right. And for this little piece of the problem, that's the tool you need. So you've got this kind of toolkit. Um, I say butterfly brain because my knowledge of this stuff is often not very deep. Mm. There, there are deep thinkers who seem to know not just a lot of areas of math, but they know a lot more about each area than I do. They've clearly spent a lot of time really understanding it. Um, I know a few areas fairly deeply and an awful lot on the surface about other bits and pieces. But it takes all kinds, but right? But it takes all kinds, and, that's and, right. And, and, the and mistake is to think that there is only one way of doing these things. Right, and, and, yeah. and you yeah. also mentioned collaboration before and the mm. fact that, that when you're doing mathematics, because this is one of the things I really wanted to talk about here, is to try to elucidate to people what exactly is happening on in the mathematical process. Again, Stuart's not doing some, some long division question with, with, uh, with million digit numerals. What, what he's doing is he, he's seeing patterns, he's seeing connections, he's seeing forms. You're looking at symmetry. Symmetry's played an enormously uh, large role in, in your research and your framework from your PhD thesis, or perhaps well before your it, PhD it, yeah. thesis onwards. Yeah, I mean, it, Looking back, I can see the kind of bits of mathematics that interested me early on were in fact, there is this common theme that runs through them and symmetries and, but the algebra of symmetry as well as the geometry, sure. it's this interesting, very interesting, very powerful combination. So, um, yeah, you know, it clearly, that appealed to me. I, I was lucky, I think, to find just the right area that, um, you know, that really suited me. But if you keep looking around, eventually you will start, you know, I, I got into the area and thought, hey, no, I rather like this. Right. This is really working. This is better than what I was working on. Because what I started working on w was fairly closely related, but rather more algebraic, rather less connection, certainly the way I did it, with the real world. Um, but after about five or six years of working in that area, I started to get the feeling that actually no, I, I ought to be doing something else. Right. And I was kind of messing, at the, you, if you look at the published papers, you can see that I was trying different things right. and, and dipping my toe in here, dipping my toe in there. And then suddenly I found what's basically um, the area I'm still working on. So 30 years <laughs> in roughly the same no, area. Broadly it's defined. Broadly defined and it's moved. And actually we're now much more interested in the dynamics of networks, which may or may not be symmetric we have a much broader notion of symmetry, if you like. Right. We're still looking for structure, we're still using uh, a certain amount of the same sort of mathematical viewpoints, but there's a whole pile of new stuff, which as far as we can see, you just have to invent new methods for. There, there isn't anything you can just take off the peg for these it, problems. It, there, was, there was another anecdote that you told, speaking of, of networks, and I think this had to do with coding and nodes, and, and, and I want you to talk a little bit about that because, again, I, I want people to understand the process of discovery and, and, and what's going on in your mind when you're working on a problem and you're chewing on a problem and you're thinking night and day about a problem. And many people, yourself included, but a vast many people in a whole range of activities of human inquiry have talked about how sometimes they work, um, uh, they, they sleep on something or, or they, they, their subconscious is actually working in a particular way on a problem when, when they, they themselves are consciously stuck on the, on the problem. 
And people do this when they're, when they're writing books. People do this when they're uh, trying to uh, come up with all sorts of problem-solving issues with where should we put the aqueduct or what should we do here or there. And they're doing it when they're doing basic mathematics as well. So when, when uh, I think there was this, this particular anecdote that you talked about when you, you were doing these doodles with color coding with these particular nodes, and you, you yep. were making doodles, you were trying to, you were stuck on a problem, and you were trying to find a way to how you got unstuck on that problem, and, and often these things are, are unconscious. Yeah, it was um, Marty Golubitsky's postdoc had come up with an interesting network of oscillators, which did something that symmetric networks ought to do, and he could prove it, but it wasn't a symmetric network. Right. It was close, but it wasn't the right. same. And we were racking our brains to work out why this asymmetric network was behaving as if it was a symmetric network, and getting pretty much nowhere with it. And a friend of mine invited me to a conference in Poland, in Warsaw. And another friend who was in Krakow decided that we should go down for the weekend. So I was sitting on a train going from Warsaw to Krakow, and I started drawing little pictures of this network. And then I started colouring in the dots. Right. And some of them were synchronised with others, and so they were doing exactly the same thing. So I coloured them all the same colour. And I ended up with this picture with four different colours of dots. And you were doing this just because you just were playing around and you were trying to get a handle on things. I was trying to pass the time. I, I, you know, I, wa I wanted something to do. It was a rather boring train journey, to be honest. Um, and, uh, and then I looked at the picture and said, hang on. Every green dot has an input from a red dot. Every red dot has one from a blue dot. If I draw the picture not of the whole network, but of how the colours are connected to each other, Look, it's symmetric. No. Oh, right. That's now. And uh, by the time I got home, um, I pretty much had the whole thing worked out. I'd realized how to formulate the problem. I'd realized why this behavior that we'd observed, that our postdoc had observed, was actually happening. Not only could I prove it, I could explain it. You know, it, it, it had become obvious. Right. And, and it opened up a whole it new line. It opened up a whole new line. We're still working on it. We're currently trying to apply it to um, visual illusions hmm. and a phenomenon where um, it's called rivalry, binocular rivalry. You show one picture to the left eye, one picture to the right eye, perhaps related in some way, and what the brain perceives is neither of those pictures or one picture alternating with the other or a picture that's some sort of funny mixture or a mixture of pictures alternating with each other. The simplest one would be something like I, I show your left eye a vertical grid of black and green lines and the right eye a horizontal grid of black and pink lines and then what people will see, they might see the green grid alternating with the pink grid or they might see a pink and vertical line combination which is not what either eye is seeing. It's got the colour from one eye and the direction so from the So different other people eye. will see different things? Different people will see different things, but a given person will see much the same thing in any given experiment. And there are some simple phenomenological models. They're not the exact brain wiring involved, but they are some sort of map of the kind of brain wiring that's involved, probably. 
Um, but if you design a simple network to try and recognize patterns, you can come up with precisely this kind of behavior in mm. these model networks. Mm. And our symmetry mathematics comes into this, our network mathematics comes into this, and it actually looks like you can make some predictions and do some new experiments. That's what I was just going to ask. So, yeah. so it does lead to some, oh, yeah. some, some type of experimental prediction. Yeah, I mean, it may turn out, we, we haven't done these experiments yet, we know people who maybe will do them for us. Sure. But, in principle, up for it. but in principle, you can do it. There is a definite prediction, there is a definite experiment, and it will either turn out to be correct or not. And if it's not, maybe we can modify things. If it's correct, then we try and move on to another one. But it seems to make a lot of sense mathematically, and the neurophysiology makes sense. These are very simple networks that uh, could easily have evolved. Well, that's what I was going to ask. So presumably, the, the, an, another whole link uh, is, is to be starting from the mathematics and say, if the neurons are processing information in this particular way, according to these symmetry groups or symmetry principles or what have you, then what are the neurophysiological conditions in order for that to happen? And, and, and what would it be like if we imagined that this was necessarily the case and we'd scale this up neurophysiologically? What would happen on a larger scale? It would give us a deeper understanding as to how the brain actually works. You ought to join this group. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really useful idea. Yeah, no, that's right. I think um, every so often in a research career, Something happens, it may be very simple, it may not be a, a great insight in its own right, but some, something in your brain says, hey, that might really work. That's what's going on here. Right. Or at least I think that's what's going on here. And I can do something with it. I can, um, I can make some serious predictions, and we can go and take a look and see, if, see if, they, if they hold up. If they hold up, develop it further. If they don't, back to the drawing board. Don't give up on a good idea just because it doesn't work. Um, but don't persist for too long if all the experiments say, no, it's not like that. You're just crazy. It's wrong. Um, we've derived it from a lot of experiments, and it's consistent with pretty much everything we've seen. Uh, but it is possible to make new predictions. In fact, it, it's actually better than the animal movement from that point of view. Really? Yeah. We can make a lot more predictions cool. for this idea than we could for the animal movement idea. As, as you were talking, there, there was, so this is a complete aside, but, uh, but I don't particularly care that the cameras are, 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 are filming, that my understanding is that people uh, got animal movement wrong. So if you look at some 18th century paintings of horses, they have all their legs extended at the same time, going, going over fences and so forth, because that's the way it appeared to them in their snapshot, that all the legs, were, they weren't actually moving the way they really are moving. They weren't depicting them moving the way they really are moving in some paintings. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. If you, um, English pubs, if you go into <laughs> the nice, the, 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 what looks like a real English pub, you know, with the, 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 the oak beams, black and white, and it, it looks like it's right. been around since the, the 14th century or something. Yeah. Um, and on the wall, you sometimes see these hunting prints. Right. And yes, they will have horses going over a jump, and the legs are splayed out. All of them. Yeah, all of them. All of them. <laughs> and, you know, and we are used to watching, not just watching movies, but seeing photographs. So we know what it really looks like, and right. it doesn't look like that. Right. But it sure looked like that to them. And there's a whole history of, uh, I mean, one of the big problems from Aristotle right through to um, somewhere towards the end of the 19th century was if a horse is trotting, are there times when it's completely off the ground? And Leland Stanford Jr., who founded Stanford University, has supposedly had this bet with somebody for twenty-five thousand dollars, which was a lot of money, huge amount of money, um, that the horse really was all off the ground. 
And Edward Muybridge, who in, invented, among other things, a camera that took very rapid photographs, had a very the quick shutter, yeah. or whatever, yeah. and he lined up about 25 of these in a row with trip wires, and they trotted a horse past, click, 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 photographs, and there in the middle is one with the horse completely off the ground. Wow, so he got us money. Yeah, he got, so, well, so, so the story goes. Right. Maybe um, that's how Stanford was and, founded. Yeah, I mean. and it well, could be. <laughs> and, and, and Mybridge produced beautiful books of all sorts of animals and people and so on moving right. in this way. And eventually this, this became the movie industry. This was the basis of movie technology. Really? They started trying to automate this. Can we do it with one camera, not 25? Huh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, what, what, what's a movie? It's a whole series of stills, right. one after the other. Right. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, but until not much more than 100 years ago, people had no idea how animals actually moved. And Mybridge's work was so striking and, and attracted attention so much because suddenly you could freeze an animal moving and you could see what it was doing. And people looked at it. It must have been amazing at the time. You know, imagine the, the first time ever you could see this kind of yeah, thing. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I want to get back. So we've talked a little bit about mathema what mathematics is and what, what, it, what you've done, how it felt, what you've accomplished, what it really means to be doing mathematics. Just a, t a tiny you know, little bit to give people an insight. Um, we've talked about, at the beginning, the frustrations that people have with mathematics, or at least the non-mathematical people have with mathematics. Now I'd like to move to the, the, the third part of the conversation, which keys into uh, another very strong aspect of, of your particular history and proclivities, which is not only to be doing mathematics as a practicing mathematician, but also to be popularizing mathematics, to be talking about mathematics to people, to be spreading the joy of mathematics, the insights, the games, the fun. Many of the people for whom you write are people who themselves are unabashedly interested and excited and curious about mathematical things. Um, you also, as you mentioned, you also write science fiction, you write in a, in a large variety of different ways. But throughout, there seems to be this thread of excitement of mathematics, joy of mathematics, love of mathematics and knowledge, playfulness, playing with forms, playing with yeah. symmetries, playing with language sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I want to get back to this, the mathematician phobic or the math phobic individual. Um, do, you, do you try to write for them in any way? Do you try to directly address any of your writings or any of your, uh, any of your works towards people who might not otherwise have a window into this world of mathematics? On the whole, not directly, in the sense I don't sit down and think, okay, I'm going to write a book right. which will encourage this sort of person into right. the subject. Right. Um, but indirectly, I think, one of the things that, if you get these people in a one-on-one, -on -one, you can very often start to get them interested if they're prepared to, to stop switching off and actually spend 10 minutes. Right. You know, let me just tell you something interesting about how, how, how an elephant moves, right. whatever. And I've got some talks on that topic which I've given to um, advanced mathematics conferences and the exact same talk to a science fiction convention. <laughs> and everybody loves it <laughs> because nice pictures, movies of animals, you can pull the mathematical patterns apart and everyone can see it. Right. And I think that kind of experience does change people's minds to some extent. So if I can get somebody in a receptive mood, then I think it is possible to get them to change their minds about what mathematics is. 
And what I hope with the books is that at least sometimes some of these people will pick one up for whatever reason. Maybe because it just the cover picture or the title or something about it rings bells and they start... I mean, quite a few people, particularly as they get older, start to think, you know, it's true I was never any good at mathematics when I was at school, but maybe now I ought to try and do something about it. Sometimes they start to feel guilty. They dismissed it too, too easily. I mean, it's, it's not unusual when you get old to revisit things or, from your childhood. Or, or maybe, they, or maybe or, they stop caring about what other people think that's quite right. as much. Yes, or... you don't mind so much when you're old. You, 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 you do your own thing. Yeah. Um, and they're much less likely to be put off by somebody... Uh, if, if you put a 65-year-old in front of a bad teacher, they, they won't throw up their hands in horror and, and, yeah. and be put off the subject. They'll just say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, right. do you? And, um, you know, uh, 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 they will have much more confidence um, and bloody-mindedness, stubbornness. Um, but uh, I, think, I think most, I think to be honest, most of the people who read my books are actually the sort of people who like reading that kind of book. It, it's, it's a tautology, it's obvious. Mm -hmm. The audience you get will be people who are in some way interested in the subject, otherwise they wouldn't have bought the book. Yeah. But I think there are some, and some books are exceptional. The Letters to a Young Mathematician book was quite deliberately aimed at a rather different audience from the usual one. Yes. And that made it real fun to write. Um, it was the publisher's idea. They had, they had a series and I, they just got in touch and invited me to write the book. And I thought, yeah. oh, no, that, that's a nice idea. I wonder what I can do. Um, but it was a chance to think about the whole thing in a different way. So I think, the, in fact, I enjoy writing more and I think the book tends to be better if I'm learning quite a bit myself while I'm doing it. So what did you learn when you, when you wrote this? I think what I, what I learned was to try and put myself in a slightly unfamiliar position, which was not, I'm the person who's been trained in mathematics, here's what's going on in this subject area, let me tell you about it, but a little bit more, you're somebody who wants to know about that sort of thing, but at the moment you don't. Now, what should I be telling you? What can I tell you that would help, not just with the actual mathematical content, but with thinking about how you get it into your head? Indeed. Um, so various pearls of wisdom, like um, one that a lot of our students, and I think at school actually, causes great trouble. Um, a lot of people seem to have the idea that you work your way through the textbook or your lecture notes line by line in the order they were given to you and when you get stuck you stop because you've reached the obstacle. And you have to figure it out and then you and have there. to figure it out further. you can't go any further. Right. Now what I realized and I think my butterfly brain helped here <laughs> was you can actually just say okay there's a problem here don't understand that put it on one side, what comes next? You know, and what comes next is often something that you do with the idea that you don't understand. Now sometimes if you're doing something with an idea, you start to figure out what it actually is. Indeed. Yes, If somebody gives you a, a tool and you don't know what the tool is, you stare at this thing and try and puzzle out what you do with it. But if they pick it up and start hitting a nail with it... You might figure it out. You might figure it out. And so one of the pearls of wisdom is don't worry if you get stuck. Just don't pretend you know. No, flag this as something you don't understand. Move on. Enlightenment may occur anyway. 
if that goes on too, too long or you put too many things aside, okay, you can't do this indefinitely. Right. At some point you have to say, hang on, I've got to, I, ha I have got one way or another, I have got to work my way through this. Right. Find somebody who understands it, go back to the teacher, start asking questions, read a different book, do something different. Don't just bash your head against the same brick in the wall right. over and over and over again. You're not going to get anywhere. It didn't work yesterday, why will it work today? Look at it in a different way. You might make progress. It's, I've run my entire life by this, this method. No. And, and there, is, there is an awful lot to say. I, I think, uh, just speaking from my own uh, uh, limited experience and, and those other people whom I've, I've spoken with, there is a lot to be said for just diving in and trying to get one's hands dirty because um, we all like to feel like we're on safe ground. We understand everything completely, but there's nothing quite like actually trying to work with a problem. Um, a, common, a common problem, you, you must have uh, experienced this with, and I'm sure you've encouraged your, all, all your PhD students, there's, there's, a, there's a common mentality that many people have, which is, oh, I just want to make sure I understand this. Oh, I can't do this until I do this course and this course. Yes, but I don't know everything there is to know about differential yeah. geometry. <laughs> oh, I don't know everything there is to know about whatever, Galois theory or something. Um, so I'm going to wait. And, and the job of often a very good supervisor is to say, look, take this problem and do it. And you'll learn a lot of these things along the way. You'll pick them up along the way. And, and I'm sure you're, uh, you've experienced this many times and you're very well suited to that. Absolutely. Um, I think I've been fortunate. Most of my students are the kind who very quickly work this out. Right. <laughs> but there's certainly been one or two who probably spent the first year and a half of a three-year PhD reading books and papers and courses and didn't actually start thinking about the problem at all. And it didn't matter how many times I told them not to do this, <laughs> they'd still do it. <laughs> and they finally started to make progress when they stopped doing that. And uh, to their credit, eventually all of them did. I, I've, I've never had a PhD student fail um, the whole time. Uh, a couple came close, but um, they all got their PhDs in the end. And that, that they got it through their own, I didn't. Feed them sure, sure. They, 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 did, they did it themselves. Longer. But some took longer to work it out than others, and some knew this from day one. Um, there was a young lady from Brazil who arrived, and while she was trying to find somewhere to live, was wandering around looking at accommodation and fixing up all of the things. In the first week she arrived, while doing all of this, she went over another student's PhD thesis and discovered there was actually a mistake in part of it and worked out what he should have done instead what? and brought a stack of papers literally three quarters of an inch thick to me with calculations doing all of this um, and also felt that Good this, choice of students. This, yeah, but, but well, she, she was exhausting because it carried on like this. Um, but she was obviously used to behaving like this and furthermore she didn't say, oh look, here's my thesis in the first week. She said, okay, now where do we go from here? <laughs> you know, I now understand where we're starting from. Yes, there was a mistake, but I fixed it up. It just one case was missing. You know, there's one extra possibility that had to be thought out. Uh, and then she built on that. But I've had students of that kind um, quite a lot. Christopher Zeman, who founded the Mathematics Institute at Warwick, always said this, and I guess I probably picked this up from him to some extent anyway. The whole attitude in the early days in the math department at Warwick was basically 
find an interesting problem and plunge in and see what happens. And if after a while you're not getting anywhere, find a different problem. Maybe come back eventually to the first one, you know, don't give up completely, but get in there and play. Right. And you will learn things. I can't tell you what you're going to learn, but you will learn things by doing that. And you will also get this kind of possibly exaggerated confidence that you can handle this. <laughs> Which is helpful. It's helpful, even if it turns out you're wrong. <laughs> you start out in a positive frame of mind. You start out... The, now, I can puzzle this out. It may not be my area of mathematics. May, I, there, there, there's something going on. I'm going to have to learn something here. I'm not sure what it is. But, you know, the, the, this problem doesn't... I'm not in my comfort zone. But if you start to feel comfortable when you're not in your comfort zone, so to speak, I, I think that's a very useful... It certainly greatly enhances your it's comfort zone. It's very valuable. Zone. Yeah. I, I want to ask you two more questions. I'd like to ask you a little bit about this whole issue of gender. There are many people getting into the mathematical perspective, the mathematical mind. Do I have a mathematical mentality or do I not? Who might be tempted to argue, and there are some people who do argue, that, oh, women can't do mathematics. They just don't. They're not built that way. They don't have what it takes. They don't have the mathematical disposition. There are, uh, so there are two points to be made, one of, one of which I find uh, completely reasonable and expected, and one of them is somewhat confusing to me. So the, the reasonable point is that you have shown this empirically yourself to be completely unfounded. You have supervised many uh, female graduate students, and they have all done very well. And they've all, as you say, they've all graduated, and some of them have done, done extremely well mathematically and so forth. Um, that's not a surprise, but uh, I'd, I'd, I would like to hear you comment on your experiences there. But the most surprising thing is that they, they all seem to be Portuguese somehow. So <laughs> they, <laughs> that come about. They're either from Portugal or Brazil, or Brazil, which right, speaks of course, Portuguese. Right, right, right. So they all seem to be Portuguese. It's Portuguese speaking. tradition. It's Portuguese speaking. It all started with a Portuguese PhD student, Isabel Laboreal. She's now in Porto, and she came here and she wanted to do mathematical biology. We didn't really have anyone in mathematical biology. But I was the odd job man in the department, and it sounded interesting. <laughs> well, it was the Hodgkin-Huxley nerve impulse equation she worked on. Oh, really? And it was another one of these strange coincidences. Um, she and I were... She was very self-propelled. She was happy to take part in actually thinking of a problem, let alone working on it. Right. She didn't need me to feed her problems. Uh, we were both trying to think of a really good problem for her to do, and we'd been looking at a, a paper on the nerve impulse which showed a very interesting bifurcation diagram. It showed how the amplitude of the nerve impulse varied with some uh, parameter. And it was, a, it, was, it was sort of shaped like this. It was a thing that went up and it did a little wiggle and went back down again. Okay. And it had to be. Marty Golubitsky, my collaborator, was visiting, and he gave a talk on his latest research work and in the middle of this talk, up came the same diagram. Identical. And he was classifying a particular kind of dynamic behavior. And so you didn't have to be terribly intelligent to look at his picture and look at the other picture and say, his techniques must tell us something about the nerve impulse equations. Right. He had a general technique for finding this kind of behavior we are seeing this behavior in computer simulations of nerve impulse equations. Therefore, his technique ought to apply. Right. And we had a quick word with Marty, and the three of us very rapidly decided, yep, this is going to work. You know, it, 
there's a lot of hard work to make to, to, to do the, do the calculations, yeah. flesh it out, but the basic idea is sound. Isabel got her PhD, it, it did work. She then went off to Portugal, got a job there, and started sending her good students to Warwick to do PhDs. Nearly all of whom were women, a couple of men, um, most of whom ended up doing a PhD with me because they were interested in what Isabel was interested in right. and that was what I was interested in, so one or two didn't. Um, all did very well and they came with the attitude that it was perfectly normal for a woman to do mathematics. In fact, to some extent, there are probably more women doing mathematics in Portugal at university level and very possibly in teaching the men. Really? So there's something it in Portuguese society job. somehow. No, but yeah. seriously, there's something in Portuguese society. That's, that's fascinating. Um, I think it goes back in the mathematics department in Porto, which was until recently was in an old building in the center of the city. On It was also the science building. Maths was part of this. And, it, you know, 100 years earlier, it had been the science building. And there was a huge mural on the wall um, showing one of the great chemistry professors in his laboratory with his three female lab assistants. <laughs> and I think somewhere way back in Portugal, it may have been a fairly low-level position, but everybody starts out as a lab assistant or a right. PhD student or right. something. You know, you're not the boss. Right. But this chap had discovered that women were really good in science, that they would, they were probably better than the men at actually being careful about doing what they were told. They were more meticulous in some ways, because I think women were kind of perhaps trained to be like that. Um, I don't know this, but it was very striking that there was clearly a very long historical tradition of women in science in Portugal. And so you just don't ask that question anymore. Not in the way we would. So why is it that more people haven't noticed that? I mean, you, you, you have every so often these conferences and women in science. I mean, your, your experience, anecdotal but, but considerable, in terms of the numbers of, of instances, would seem to point to, take a look at this place. They're doing something right. Yeah. What, is it? what was it? What is it? Yeah. How that's, did that's, this happen? Right. Yeah. Um, there are women in mathematics. There is a women in mathematics organization. Indeed. And I think they understand this. Um, but one of the problems for women in mathematics is there are still not as many as there should be. I think it is improving. Um, there are figures that show it's improving at certain levels. Um, but if you are a very good woman mathematician, the demands on your time are absolutely enormous. Mm. For a start, you have to get involved in the women in mathematics organization. <laughs> yes, whereas men don't have that problem. Right. Um, so there are many reasons why it's, even if it's fairly clear that here's an interesting problem, you know, this needs to be investigated, this is something not as well known as it should be. It also goes counter to various people's prejudices, so they tend to dismiss it. But it is absolutely clear. It is, you know, I, I don't know why I have ideas, but it's a fact. And we should look at them. And we should bit, look at them. A little bit more closely. Yeah, and we should talk to them. They can tell us what it was about their background. And part of it is slightly negative that mathematics in Portugal is not a fantastically well-paid job. Yeah, but mathematics in many places is not a fantastically well-paid well, job. That's true. Yes, it depends on... But um, 
it could be, it, it, it's, it's a little bit, um, I mean, this is something that uh, feminists quite rightly are very upset about, but there has been a cultural tendency to, for women to do the lower paid jobs. So this is tied to a social hierarchy. So it could be tied to some negative aspects of the Portuguese right. structure as well as positive ones. Years ago, I was in Houston and a woman astronaut came to give a talk. And uh, she said she'd been going around high schools and um, explaining to all the girls that you could be an astronaut. And she said, what, what was happening was the boys were getting put off being an astronaut because they thought it was a job for the girls. <laughs> so you can't always right. win. No, one has to be careful. <laughs> you can't but. always win. But, um, you know, it seems clear from... Uh, I mean, mathematicians tend to have a fairly black-and-white view of things. If there's a counterexample, it's not a theorem. If there is a place where women are just as good at maths as men, and by, uh, we have had male students there as well, they are as good as students from anywhere in the world, and they're as good as each other. There is no difference in their abilities. Right. Um, so there's no question that in Portugal it's like that. And that means that any argument that says it's an inherent biological... You know, Portuguese aren't different from the rest sure. of us, but the culture is different, so it's clearly got to be a cultural... Effect. Um, I'd like to conclude uh, bringing it back to, to, to my first question uh, about this intelligent, knowledgeable, potentially erudite individual who's afraid of mathematics. A society where people talk about the dangers of, of enumeracy and, and that we should be more concerned with making sure that we're training larger numbers of people who are competent in mathematics. These sorts of concerns. And take a somewhat different tact, maybe play devil's advocate and say, well, who cares? Who cares that only a minority of people are interested in mathematics, are any good at mathematics, can achieve things in mathematics? So yes, we have our, our lawyers, and certainly lawyers, and, and, and we have our, uh, our, our historians, and we have this, that, and the other, uh, who may serve all sorts of interesting social functions or may not, but who are not particularly mathematically inclined. But as long as we have this minority of mathematically sophisticated people who are going, who, who are being productive to society, that's all that matters. Um, and in fact, we don't have enough places for mathematicians anyway. We don't have enough places at universities for mathematicians anyway. We don't want everyone to be a mathematician anyway. Does it really matter? Does it matter if only 5% of, uh, of our society gives a fig about mathematics or, or thinks it's worth thinks it's worthwhile. Society's always been like that. Maybe it always will be like that. Why should we even bother? How would you respond to that? Well, I'm, I'm unlikely to respond by saying, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, although it would make mathematicians' lives easier in some respects. And it would be a bit like the medical profession used to be in the United Kingdom with far too few doctors, which meant they got paid an awful lot for what they did. Mm. Um, it could be to the advantage of the mathematical profession to go along with this in some ways. But um, I think where the whole thing falls apart is the perception that you only need a small percentage of mathematically capable people to run the society we're in. And it's just not true. There are an enormous range of jobs where you need to know a certain amount of basic mathematics. Uh, m my wife was training as an ophthalmic nurse, specialising in eyes, and mathematics was by no means her favourite subject at school. The only bit of maths she liked was geometry, because they had a very good-looking 
my old math teacher in it geometry. Works. It always helps. Um, anyway, uh, but um, when she was doing her ophthalmics course, she had to know some probability of genetic defects in eyes and just eye colour and things like that. She had to know basic optics, which is all you know, these, these optical formulae that you learn in school physics yeah. courses. Snell's law and all that Yeah, sort of thing. all of that sort of stuff and yeah. 1 over R plus 1 over right. whatever. Recipro all the curvatures of, of right. the lenses and so forth. Focal length. She, had to, she actually had to learn about three different areas. She had to use stuff from three different areas of mathematics mm -hmm. to do her basic training to get the qualification to move into ophthalmic nursing. And that's a typical instance. If you start going down lists of professions and start crossing out the ones that you can't do because you don't know basic math, let alone anything advanced, after a while you're running out of mm. professions. Um, there was a poster campaign in the United States aimed at disadvantaged people, which was telling them that understanding things like calculus empowered them. It's the same point of view. Yes. And it wasn't just propaganda. Sure. Yeah, it opens up a whole pile of things that would otherwise be denied to you. So I often try and turn that question around and, and say, OK, you're, you're a parent, your child is having trouble at school with math. So you go to the teacher and say, I don't want her to do math anymore. She's no good at it. And she says, fine, that's great. By the way, she'll never be a surgeon. She'll never go into a bank. She'll never be a pilot. She'll never be an ophthalmic nurse. Right. And so she and, might even be a lawyer. Yeah, we're still. That's right. right. And at some point, the parent is going to get really, really upset and say, but you're denying my child. You know, I don't know what she wants to be yet. Mm. You're denying her the opportunity. Exactly. You're cutting off her you're future. You're cutting it off. Mathematics is absolutely fundamental to our culture. Um, there was a, a report for the US government recently. I can't remember precise details, but I can remember the figure. Um, at the broad mathematical sciences, that is not just math, but um, statistics, computer science, things that are heavily involved with math, um, that in the first 10 years of this century, the net contribution of the mathematical sciences to the US economy in terms of enabling jobs and uh, manufacturing industries and things like that was $37 trillion. Thirty-seven trillion in ten years. Three point seven trillion a year. I think that's even bigger than their debt, isn't it? Yeah, that is huge. <laughs> and you know, and this was a government report. So you, you, you can look this up and find out the details sure. and argue with the. But it's massive. It is absolutely massive. There was one in the UK, which reckoned that well over ten percent of gross national product comes from the mathematical sciences. Without them, it wouldn't exist. Right. So this is actually very important. Math is in everything we use, everything we do. Um, you really can't... I think I'll wait, actually. <laughs> I think that would be a good idea. OK, yeah. Um, it's all right, well... OK, yeah. Um, it really is important to understand that behind the scenes in everything we do, there's huge amounts of math, and you've got to have people who know how to put it there. Um, I've often thought, uh, if, if, if you're aware of this, from the moment you get up in the morning, you start to see it. You see, I look at the clock. It's one of these modern clocks that sets its own time by radio. 
I think we'll wait until this has gone through. Actually. He'll disappear in a moment. Yeah, I'll, I'll start again. Okay, right. So, if you look at the clock. Yeah. If you look at a clock when you get up, our clock is one of these little, this little one, but it's set automatically by radio. So, without radio, that clock would not work in that way. Well, radio works because of a whole pile of mathematics. The engineers have to know the math. I don't have to know it to read the clock. Um, but the people who manufactured the clock, somebody there has to know a certain amount about that. And that's just one example. And if you improve upon that clock, if you want a, a better clock, a different clock, if you want the technology to keep increasing and improving... Then more and more math comes in. Our culture hides the math away. I think deliberately, because you don't... I mean, if, if you're in marketing, you don't want a label on it saying, unless you understand math, you can't, have, you can't use this gadget. Because right. people won't, won't want to. Certainly not the market. But I mean, not. take any of our current electronic gadgets, iPads, Kindles, mobile phones, oh. GPS... I'm glad you mentioned GPS because then you get general relativity that comes into GPS play. GPS well. has special relativity and general relativity and Newtonian mechanics and pseudo-random numbers and trigonometry and all of that without which it would not work. It's the poster boy. It's the poster boy technology right. of theoretical science. <laughs> yeah, but it really is. I finally got a car that's got a good GPS system in it and I, and, and, and I sort of stare in awe at this thing. Oh, gosh, you know, because it... I did a three-and-a-half-hour journey, and it told me to within about three minutes how long it was going to take when I started. And, you know, and it was right. Um, it was just amazing. So we have these magic gadgets, and inside them all are layer upon layer upon layer of mathematics. It may be in the form of a computer chip, but you just go back. The further back you go, the more math is coming in. Because as well as designing the computer chip to do the calculations, there's a whole pile of mathematics about computer chips and how to manufacture them. My, my oldest son works for a company that uses mathematical models to uh, analyze how crowds will flow in big buildings, public buildings. Um, it's everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. It is absolutely everywhere. Um, I often feel we, we ought to have a little red label which says math inside, and you stick it on things. But if we did, Everything in the world would have these labels on. So I think people underestimate how much math is actually required and how much our society consumes. You know, if in any given part of it, you personally are not, unless you're an engineer or somebody making this stuff, you may not be using this at least most of the time. And it's not the math you did at school. It isn't, you know, it, it's not that you learn math because it helps you balance your bank statement. Right. No, the bank will do that for you. You can look at it and say, hang on, I didn't pay for that. Right. Or whatever. You know, and, and, you, you, and you can use a calculator if you're right. not sure how to do it. It's um, real math. It's, it, it's, it's real math. It's, uh, school math is about one hundredth of a percent <laughs> of the mathematical enterprise. Right. You know, it's, it's not the tip of the iceberg. It's, 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 a, it's an inch or so on the top of the iceberg. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and people don't understand just how much math is going on, and nearly all of it, maybe not straight away, but nearly all of it starts to become useful somewhere. And most of our fancy gadgets won't work without it. Well, Ian, thank you very much for explaining that to us and talking to me. Thank you very, very much. Very interesting discussion. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. 
As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Anthropology and Sociology, along with separate discussions with Joseph Curtin, Fred Gittleman, Mark Maslin, and Franz Duval. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.